You get some new tires here, there, every once in a while. But other than that, things go pretty good. And then one day the oil tech comes to you and he says, hey, you're showing some signs of some wear on your tires and also on your, you know, those little things where your tire, your wheels attached to the car. What are those called? Yes, those. Boots, joints. Depends on what group I'm talking to, if it's a joint or not, right? So <laughs> you, it's where it attaches there to the, and you say you, you're getting some wear there. You've got enough miles on your car. You need to keep your eye on that because eventually you're going to need to replace that. And you think, okay, in the future, I'm going to replace that and take care of that. And you don't do it. So you wait and you wait. You go through a couple more oil changes. But each time the tech comes to you and says, hey, you're going to need to address this because uh, you know, there there's some wear and um, you're, you're, you know, I, I can't tell you how long they're going to last. That's what they always say, right? I can't tell you how long it's going to last, but you need to address this. And so now, you know, it's urgent, but now, you know, maybe you don't have the money right now. And so you're every time you get into the car, you're thinking about that. Every time you get in, every time you start the car, every time you go drive somewhere, you're thinking, I need to replace those. I haven't replaced those. And so you try to ignore it at this point. But now you have trouble because you're actually having stress about that because you know you don't know how long it's going to last. And so you're thinking about it every time you get in the car. We have a tendency to do this with our automobiles. We, we just do many of us. Now, some of you, you're, you, you get it checked and get them things replaced right on time as soon as they say it. Many of us, we wait, we put it off, and then we have stress about that. But here, here's the thing. It seems so frequently that this is exactly what we do in our lives as well. You know, we look at our children, we look at our, our, our families and the lives of our children, and we often see things that we think, you know, that that might need to be addressed. We might need to do something about that. Or maybe you see a behavior or you hear something from your child, and it kind of makes you tilt your head a little bit, and you kind of cock one eyebrow up just because you're like, I'm not sure about this. That, that may be a sign that something's not great, something's not right. Or maybe they're just beginning to head down a path, down a road. And we think about that, and we worry about that. But then often we kind of come to this place where we say, well... Surely not. I mean, I mean, I must have, I must have missed something. I must have, not my child, right? Not my child. So we just kind of sit back and we watch and we wait maybe to see if what happens again. And then when it does, we say, ah, oh, rats, it did happen. I mean, they, they are headed down the wrong direction. And at that point, we sit back and we watch again. And maybe we offer a few verbal comments from time to time. Maybe we nag a bit or maybe not. But we watch and we worry and we have this habit of kind of pushing it away emotionally or mentally and we deny it as long as possible. We ignore it. We think maybe it'll go away. Maybe they will get better or maybe they'll make better decisions tomorrow or next week or after the summer or after the school year. The very same thing we have a tendency to do with our car. We say, wow, fixing those wheels, that, that's going to take some money. It's going to cost me. Maybe I need to do it later. 
Maybe it can wait till later. And then we take that kind of philosophy and we apply it to our families and our children. And we say, well, you know, making a course adjustment now, when our, when our child's in high school or if your child's a young adult, but they're still living in your home, even if it's just somebody that's very close to you, maybe a close friend, making a course adjustment at that stage of life, well, we realize it's going to cost me. If I'm going to try to make that course adjustment in the life of my child at this stage, at this point in their life, it's going to cost me. It's going to be much tougher than I'm prepared to endure. And so we often sit back and we watch. And we say things like, well, they're too old or I, I, I can't, I'm too late. The crazy thing is this, this applies not just to people that you are in a relationship with. This concept also applies to ourselves. We seem to do the very same thing with ourselves. We see potential problems with ourselves and we ignore it. We kind of push it out of our mind. We kind of excuse it away or we deny it. We say, oh, not now, not now. I'll deal with that later. It's just too costly right now. It, it can wait. Or we say, oh, it's not really a problem right now. I mean, I, I'm, I've got it under control. And then one ordinary day, you're not even off-roading in your truck or your Prius, if that's what you have. <laughs> you're just driving to Walmart, and one day the wheel actually falls off your car. Vanessa and I were driving by a, a little grocery store and the wheel had fallen off of a car. And she said, what? What's wrong? I was like, they didn't listen to their tech. <laughs> He's been telling them. The wheel rolls off your car. Your car hits the ground. Someone runs into the back of your car. Other people are swerving out of the way just to miss, just to miss the person beside them. They're trying to miss you. And they're cussing at you, and you're cussing at them, and all of that would have been a simple repair in the car, but now it has become several cars in an accident, all needing much more costly repairs, probably more costly than the actual value of the car itself, and you know what that means. It's now totaled, and that is a picture many times of our lives. It is a common occurrence in our families. It's a common event as we look at our own personal lives as well. We just fail to address the problem. We try to forget about it or we try to ignore it. Oh, we worry about it. We're, we're not able to ignore it much longer. We try. But less and less we're able to ignore it and deny it. We work diligently to push it to the back of our minds, but to no avail until the disaster happens. And then it seems like one disaster at that point leads to another because we seem to handle all the disasters the same way. So Donnie's going to come up here and he's going to catch us up on this epic event 
uh, epic life, really, that David has been living. So, Donnie, you step up here and you get us started. Kind of catch us up on where we have been uh, with the life of David to this point. And I'll let you get here and I'll step down. And let me just say, I've had a wheel come off on one of my cars. You did? Yeah, and having your wheel pass you in the other lane... (laughs) is not a good feeling. That feeling in your stomach, when that occurs, it's, it's not good. Um, and when the wheels come off of life, you, you get that same, that same feeling in your stomach. Uh, like Harley said, we are looking at um, the, the life of David in David's epic story. And we're going to be in the book of uh, 2 Samuel. But first, let me just give us some context for where we're going today. Uh, the, the nation of Israel... Uh, around this time, a little bit before they had a king, they were looking around at all the other nations, and they all had kings. And they were like, God, everybody else has a, a king. And you know, God, it's a little embarrassing that, that we don't have one. Everybody else has one. They're like, where's your king? It's like, oh, we don't, we don't have one. God's our king. Um, so they're, they're pleading with God, complaining, you know, we, we don't have a king. We need a king. God's like, no, you, you don't really need a king. But eventually he says, okay, okay, you think you know best. Here's your king. And he gives him, he gives the nation of Israel, Saul, the very first king of Israel. And this whole king thing, it quickly became bad for Israel because the, the problem with a king is he starts acting like a king. And, and that's what happened to Saul. And <clears throat> a little bit after this, after while still, Saul is still king, uh, God sends Samuel to anoint David, his guy that he wants to be a king of Israel. And at this time, he's still just a, a scrawny little farm boy. But he goes, sends him to anoint him. He says, you know, you, you are going to be the king of Israel. Um, after, some time after that, David, I mean, uh, Saul dies. David then becomes king. And in the beginning, he had great success as king. God even called him, uh, called David a man after God's own very heart. You know, they had this special relationship. I mean, that's, a, that's a great thing to say about someone, that it, he's a man after God's own heart. And, and we just see in Scripture that they had this, this very special relationship. About 20 years of success David had as king, but David lays some groundwork uh, for some problems. See, he had a problem with the ladies, and not a problem getting ladies, he had a problem getting too many ladies. Um, so David, David had a lot of wives. And God's design was one man, one woman. Uh, David didn't listen to that. So things go really wrong, though, when David has an affair with someone that is about the same age as his oldest child. And this, this girl gets pregnant. David tries to cover it up by having her husband killed. Um, and it just spirals really bad, out of control. And, you know, he, then he, after that, he marries her and he tells his kids, oh, look, your new mom is just a little bit older than you are. So, and his kids are like, what? Really? Really, Dad? Um, you know, when we look at Scripture and we see this side of David's life, it, it makes us a little uncomfortable, right? Because at the same time, we see David being called a man after God's own heart, but, and it seems like he has this special connection with God, but then we see this side of David. But the thing about David's life, it screams to us um, as an example of how sin can distort even the best of men. 
But after this occurred, David, he's confronted about it. Um, he confesses, and immediately he turns his back away from sin, and he turns his face back towards God again. And, and even though David had confessed and God had forgiven him, um, as we talked about last week, uh, the seeds that, that he planted, they, they can't be unplanted. The seeds that we plant, they can't be unplanted. Uh, and David planted some really, some really bad seeds in the lives of his children. And his children, um, you know, as children are, they're more likely to, to follow our example than our advice. We can tell them to do something, but they're watching what we're actually doing. And as, as the old saying goes, uh, when it comes to our kids, more is caught than taught. We can, we can teach all day long, but they're catching what we're doing. And they will be likely to do it too. So uh, David had, had planted some really bad seeds. His kids had a, a firsthand, um, a front row seat, that is, to the mess that was going on in his life. And, you know, this, this story of David, Game of Thrones has nothing, nothing on, on David's life and his family. And, and then, you know, that's one of the reasons I think that we all should read the Bible, because there's just some crazy and amazing things going on between God and his creation throughout the Bible. So we're, we're going to pick up today in 2 Samuel and, and see how this kind of plays out. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 13, we're going to start in verse 1. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 13. Uh, now David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar. And Amnon, her half-brother, fell desperately in love. Okay, so we have some really weird, awkward stuff going on here. She is his sister. And God, I mean, God had outlawed these type of relationships. He, he talks about it multiple times throughout the Old Testament. And Amnon knew this, but he, he didn't care. Uh, verse 2, Amnon beca- became so obsessed with Tamar that he became ill. She was a virgin, and Amnon thought he could never have her. And, you know, it's pretty clear by have her. He was thinking a, a, a merely lustful, sexual way. Um, he was obsessed. And as anything, any obsession in our life, it started in his thoughts. And if we can't control thoughts, we can't control ourselves. And Amnon, he didn't. He didn't control his thoughts. So his thoughts then controlled him. But Amnon had a very crafty friend, his cousin Jonadab. He was one of David's son's brothers. Okay, you know, we, we all have people in our life that, that can influence us to do some, some really dumb things at times, right? Um, and Amnon, he is looking around to see someone to confirm what he wants to do, someone to agree with him, and he finds this in his cousin, Jonadab. So one day, Jonadab comes to him, and he says, he's like, what's the trouble? What's, what's wrong with you, basically? What's going on? You're always looking sad. He says, why does the son of the king look so dejected morning after morning? He's like, hey, you're in line to become king. What, what's going on with you? Why do you look so sad? He said, I'm in love with Tamar, my sister, my brother's sister. And, and you see, he kind of separates himself from her, that relationship, even though it's his sister, he said, oh, that's my brother's sister. You know, that's how we do. We want to justify what we're doing. We, we find a way 
to separate, you know, ourselves from that a little bit to, to justify. So he says, I'm in love with her. Well, Jonadab said, I'll tell you what to do. Now, so here comes his, his cousin going to give him um, a plan. And they come up with this plan. He says, go back to bed and pretend that you're ill. When your father comes to see you, see, because Jonadab and Amnon, they both knew that the king would come to visit his son. Because in, in this unhealthy dynamic of the family there, there, there was also some favoritism there. So he knew that, that he would come see him. And he says, he's going to come see you and ask him to let tomorrow come and prepare some food for you. Tell him you'll feel better if she prepares it as you watch and feeds it, feeds you with her own hands, which is super weird. <laughs> I mean, just let me say, this is, this is like super creepy. Um, ladies, if someone wants you to do this, don't do it. <laughs> this is weird. Um, so Amnon lay down and prepared, uh, pretended to be sick. And when the king came to see him, Amnon asked, Please let my sister come and cook my favorite dish as I watch. Then I can eat it from her own hands. Again. <laughs> so David agreed and sent uh, Tamar to Amnon's house to prepare some food for him. Okay. So we kind of need to understand something here. The, the reason why they had to go through this elaborate plan to be alone um, for Amnon to be alone with his sister is because the, the royal family was, they were very protective of the daughters uh, and for, for good reason. So there would always be someone, a servant, a chaperone, or someone there for security. So they had to, that's the reason they had to come up with this elaborate plan. When Tamar arrived at the house, at Amnon's house, went to the place where he was lying down so he could watch her mix some dough. Then she baked his favorite dish for him. Verse 9. But when she set the serving tray before him, he refused to eat. He says, everyone get out of here, Amnon told his servants. So they all left. Then he said to Tamar, now bring the food into my bedroom and feed it to me here. So she took his favorite dish to him. But as she was feeding him, he grabbed her and demanded, come to bed with me, my darling sister. No, brother, she cried. Don't be foolish. Don't do this to me. And not only is she talking about what is to come as far as rape, but the fact that she wouldn't be able to marry him. So she, she goes on, such wicked things aren't done in Israel. And what she's saying is it's against God's law for this to go on. Verse 13, where could I go in my shame? She's, she's, she's pleading with him. She's saying, if you do this, you know, think about the consequences it'll have on me. And then when that doesn't work, look, look what she, she goes on to say. And you would be called one of the greatest fools in Israel. Then she pleads with him and the consequence it would have on him. Because he's in line to be king and he would be throwing all that away. Please, just speak to the king about this. And he will let you marry me. She's like, if you'll go talk to the king, the king lets you have whatever you want. He'll probably even let you marry me. Verse 14. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her, and since he was stronger than her, he raped her. Here, Amnon commits this horrific act with, with no regard for the consequences that it, that it would have on other people or himself. 
Verse 15, then suddenly Amnon's love turned to hate, and he hated her even more than he loved her. Get out of here, he snarled at her. You know, sin has this this way of of turning on us, and it's so self-destructive, and it easily turns to self-hate. Verse 16, she cries, no, no, sending me away now is worse than what you've already done. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her. She knew that she couldn't marry him, and now she had no other option for marriage. He would be her only option now for marriage. Verse 17, he shouted for his servants and demanded, throw this woman out and lock the door behind her. So the servants put her out and locked the door behind her. She was wearing a long, beautiful robe, as was the custom in those days for the king's virgin daughters. So she was wearing this kind of showy uniform that advertised the fact that she was available as one of the king's daughters for marriage. She was a virgin. She was available for marriage. And she was no longer that. She was no longer available for marriage. So verse 19, But now tomorrow tore her robe and put ashes on her head, and then with her face in her hands, she went away crying. Her brother Absalom saw her and asked her, Is it true that Amnon has been with you? Well, my sister, keep quiet for now, since he's your brother. Don't worry about it, he says. So she lived as a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard about what had happened, he was very angry. He was very angry. That's kind of weird, right? I mean, yeah, he would be angry, but what did he do? He, he got angry, but he's the king, and this is his daughter. He did nothing else. As the leader of Israel, as the upholder of God's law, and in, as, I mean, if not that, just the fact that it was his daughter. But he, he just got mad. We don't know for sure what David was thinking. We, we know that he had created this very unhealthy family structure, though. We know that David had experienced some some major failures in front of his kids. And we know that his children saw all that play out. And we also know human nature. And we have a tendency as parents to say, you know, I want my child to choose right. I want them to, to do the right thing, choose the right path in life. But I can't say anything because, you know, I sure messed up. But, but here's the deal. If we, if we don't speak up, if we don't instruct, if we don't discipline, they're going to listen to their idiot cousin or their idiot friend and end up w- with a stupid plan that's going to hurt someone, hurt themselves, and, and eventually they end up hating themselves. See, we need people, and you as parents, you know this, we need people to say, hey, you know, that that's a dumb idea. That's stupid. And as teenagers, if I don't know how many we have in here this morning, but I, I've been right where you've, you're sitting, and I know you're smart. I, I'm not saying you're not smart. Um, you may not be quite as smart as you think you are. Um, but we need, trust me, we need people speaking into our lives saying, hey, that's not wise. And that's one reason God gave us older people in our life to, 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 to tell us to, to discipline us in a loving way. Because if we love them, that's, that's what we do, right? 
Because everyone needs someone a little more mature speaking into their life, someone holding them accountable. Because this principle that's at play in David's life is the same principle that we experience today. And although David lived thousands of years ago and, and culture and times change, people really don't change that much. We, we just don't. And so here's the principle that's true for us today. Where there is no accountability, there is no stability. Where there is no one holding us accountable, then, then we become unstable. There's, where there's no reliability then, and there's also no growth. You're not accountable. You are accountable for you and and the things you did. You do. Harley's going to come now and go ahead and finish this up for us. So, where there is no accountability, that means where where you get to just do what you want in life and. There's no checks, there's no balances, where there's no accountability, then in that same life and in the lives around you, there is no stability. You can't, because you can't rely on anything. There's no one to hold you accountable. There's, there's no growth. You see, we are accountable for what we do, but we are also accountable... In the case of David here, we're accountable for what we do not do. You see, in this case, (laughs) Amnon was accountable for what he did. But David was accountable for what he did not do. And so now we add to this story that Donnie just walked us through. Now we add a whole nother element to it. Donnie's right. The Game of Thrones has nothing on this family. Now we add to it Tamar's brother. His name is Absalom. Now, it's her full brother. It's the half-brother of Amnon. And here's where we pick it up in verse 22. And though Absalom never spoke to Amnon about this, he hated Amnon deeply because of what he, Amnon, had done to his sister. Now, not to mention, Absalom now, he's next in line behind Amnon to the throne. So there is there's some stuff going on there between these brothers. Verse 23, two years later when Absalom's sheep were being sheared, this was a big deal in that day, Absalom invited all the king's sons to come to the feast. Verse 24, he went to the king and he said... My sheep shears, they are at work. Now, would the king and his servants please, please come and celebrate this occasion with me? Now, what Absalom is doing right here somewhat mirrors Amnon's behavior as well, because Amnon went to his father and was asking and begging and pleading. It all so all so Amnon's plot involved his dad, King David. And Absalom's plot now also involves his father. And they're getting ready to step into this trap. Verse 25, the king replied, no, my son. I mean, if we all come, it'd be too much of a bother or too much of a burden for you. And at this point, the Bible says Absalom pressed him. But the king would not come. The king didn't give in, though he gave Absalom his blessing. Now, this 
was actually part of Absalom's plan. He knew the king wasn't going to come because the king, he's gotten a little lazy in this whole king and family thing. He knew he wasn't going to come. So here's where he went, verse 26. Well then, Absalom said, if you can't come, how about sending my brother Amnon with us? He was next in line for the throne. So next best thing would be the next king of Israel. Why don't you sing Amnon? Um, you know, how, how, how about that? Send my brother Amnon with us. And the king is like, well, why, why Amnon? The king asked, verse 27. But Absalom, he kept pressing. I mean, he had a plan and he was working towards it. He kept pressing the king until he finally agreed. Just like a parent who gets worn out of saying no, 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 to the same thing over and over again. No, no, no. And finally, what do they finally do so often? Okay. And that's what King David did. He agreed to let all of his sons attend, including Amnon. So Absalom prepared a feast fit for a king. Verse 28, Absalom told his men, he said, wait until Amnon gets drunk, then at my signal, kill him. Don't be afraid. I'm the one who has given the command. So take courage and do it. Now, this sounds a lot like father, like son. Very much like David uh, arranging the murder of Bathsheba's husband. Verse 29. So at Absalom's signal, they murdered Amnon. Then the other sons of the king jumped on their mules and they fled. I guess only if the mule wanted to go, they fled. Verse 30. As they were on their way back to Jerusalem, this report reached David. So someone got there quicker. And here's what he said. Absalom has killed all the king's sons, not, not left one alive. And the king got up and he tore his robe and threw himself on the ground. His advisors also tore their clothes in horror and sorrow. Verse 32. But just then, Jonadab, now this is the same guy, the same guy who gave Amnon the great advice. Way to go, cousin. The son of David's brother, here we go. They, he arrived and said, no, 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 no. Don't believe that all the king's sons have been killed. It was only Amnon. Absalom has been plotting this ever since Amnon raped his sister Tamar. He said, this has been going on a long time. He's been planning this. Verse 33. No, my lord, the king, your sons aren't all dead. It was only Amnon. Meanwhile, Absalom escaped. Then the watchman on the Jerusalem wall saw a great crowd coming toward the city from the west, and he ran to tell the king, I see a crowd of people coming. And he said, they're all on their way. That's basically what he said. Now, here's the deal. This all could have been avoided in their lives had somebody been accountable for something. But David had created in his family no accountability. You see, David actually had an accountability partner. And we saw him show up in uh, this story last week with Bathsheba. His, his accountability partner came and he said, listen, David, this isn't right. God knows this. You've got to repent. You've got to turn your life around. And in this scenario... David, who should have been holding his son and his other son accountable. There's no accountability. There's no discipline. 
He's just, he seems to be emotional about some of these things. He seems to get upset. But listen, getting upset is not accountability. Being disappointed in a decision or a behavior, that is not accountability. And where there is no accountability, there is no stability. David got angry, being angry because something has happened or your child or someone you know or someone you love has done something. Being angry is not not accountability. David's family, it seems like the wheels are coming off. Things that should have been taken care of have been brushed under the carpet. Things that should have been done, should have been acknowledged, should have been disciplined, should have... They were just indulged. There was no accountability. And therefore, there was no stability. It means you couldn't count on anything. You didn't know what was going to happen. It was up to the whim of the child in this scenario. Now, I just wonder, just think with me for a moment, where did they learn that? Possibly, possibly from their father. You see, in this life, for me and for you and for David's children and for David himself, we are always accountable for ourselves. Now, we may not want to be, and we may excuse things away. We may push them to the back of our minds. We may try to ignore it or deny it. But the reality is we are accountable for what we do and what we say and how we live, the paths we take, the decisions we make, how we treat people, what we do, everything we do. We are accountable for ourselves. But this story also highlights this. We are also accountable. Our accountability plays a role with those that we love as well. We are accountable for ourselves and our decisions, our behaviors, but we are also accountable from this standpoint. We are accountable for what we do not do. In this case, David with his children. David was accountable for what he did not do. And what did he not do? He did not hold his children in his household accountable. This week, we're just simply asking you to do this. Will you begin a conversation between you and God about this? Ourselves being held accountable And in what ways and when, perhaps, God, do we need to hold somebody we love accountable? So for today, as we look at these lives in and around the life of David spiraling out of control, will you use that as a reminder to have a conversation with God that simply says this, God... Let's talk about accountability. Accountability for me, because I need to be accountable for the things I do, what I say, what I think about, what I do. And God, I need help understanding how do I hold my children, the people I love, the people that are the closest to me, what is my role? 
and accountability. Now, to help you with this conversation that you have with God this week, we simply have a card. It's got a verse on it, a very famous verse out of Ecclesiastes, a very famous verse that just really talks about the beauty of accountability and the danger, as we saw in this story, highlighted over and over and over again, of lives where there is no accountability. Let this card encourage you this week as you have this conversation with God. God, help me understand accountability for myself and accountability, my role in my family. And as you're having that conversation this week, we're going to put some things on the blog. You'll have access to it on Facebook. I'll put a link up there. But several times this week, I'm going to give you some information on the church blog this week that will help you as you think about this concept, accountability for our lives. Because here's the truth, where there is no accountability in our lives, there is no stability. Let's pray. God, when King David heard about this, when he heard what Amnon had done to his sister, your word tells us that David simply got angry. God, may we learn that loving our children and our family, loving them, actually involves accountability. When we see rebellion and when we see destruction and paths that are leading towards destruction, God, help us understand this role. Because I know, God, it is not void of love. It is not cram-packed with judgment. God, we need to understand this from your perspective. And this morning, we just simply scratched the surface, and we need you to help us understand this. God, may we love, may we love the way you love. May we love you enough, God, and may we love our families enough to actually seek accountability, not just for them, but God, may we seek accountability for ourselves to help us, to keep us on the safe path ourselves. God, we need your help. This is a huge topic. We need your help to understand it as we have a conversation with you this week. Will you help us take a step? towards accountability in the name of Jesus who died for all of the ways that we have taken the wrong path for all of the times we kept our mouths shut when we should have said something with love for all the times that we kept our mouths open saying something with anger and venom when we then should have kept our mouths shut God thank you that Jesus died for all of that he took on the wrath of God so that we can be connected to you. And because of what he did, God, we can now have his spirit in our lives leading us, urging us, compelling us towards accountability in how we live. God, we need your help to understand it. It is in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.